Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good, live from Iowa Catholic Radio's Mercy Live Up Studios. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. This is Chris Kringle. Nah. No, it's, it's Bud Marr. Ah, oh, you, yeah, you had sorry. me faked out. Sorry to get everybody's hopes up. Uh, well, not to fake anyone out, we are coming from various parts of these United States of America. Bo Bonner here in Des Moines, Iowa, in Iowa Catholic Radio Mercy Live Up Studios. I am the director of Mercy College, uh, the director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences, MCHS.edu, director of the Zeta Institute for Foundation and Ethics and Leadership at ZetaInstitute.com. But out there in Pittsburgh with the, the, the smell of renewed playoff hopes in the air, what do you do out there? I'm the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies, newmanstudies.org. I noticed, Bud, just making yeah. a point, that Pittsburgh did play better after the word got out that Newman was going to be maybe canonized. <laughs> oh, man. Ever since I got back into town from Thanksgiving... Like, each Monday drive was more apocalyptic, and <laughs> last week it was just like, after they lost the Raiders, right. we're all going to die! And then they made Tom Brady, I mean, not to, you know, make anything too definite, but it sounds yeah. like Tom Brady is uh, a retired, uh, if you go by Pittsburgh Steeler fans, that they knocked yeah, him into retirement. I don't know, I think people just, they, they swing too far one direction, so yeah, you beat the Patriots. Now they're supposedly over the hill, I mean... The Patriots have two games left at home. They're still going to win 11 games. I don't know. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's it's that magical time of year when um, we're waiting for bowl games so everybody can act like their team is better than they actually are. Yeah. Um, in football, if you are in the playoff race, you can act like your team's better than you are. My team got eliminated, and unfortunately by the Browns. So <laughs> sorry, Broncos fans. It, it didn't work out that well this year. Um, in baseball, People are making their big moves, you know, so uh, people can yep. hope spring eternal. This is what I like to call the Chicago Cubs' best part of the season, mm -hmm. uh, when they've played no games, actually, and can imagine. Uh, just like the John Lennon song, bud. Um, and yeah. then basketball starting to get ramped up. You were teasing me uh, on uh, on uh, the good old phone messages about uh, the Thunder getting into fisticuffs with the Chicago Bulls. So it's just a nice time of year sports-wise. Yeah, that was intense. You know, I thought for the holidays that, you know, everyone would play nicely, but apparently not the Bulls. No, it's Robin Lopez versus Steve Adams slash Aquaman would be a fantastic uh, brawl. There you go. Um, in fact, you know, as always, we're underwritten by, uh, by uh, Cartridge World. And if you wanted to make a 64-team tournament, not of basketball, but of basketball players in MMA fights and who would win, uh, you can get uh, your ink from Cartridge World and print out your whole series of NBA uh, player-flavored uh, mixed martial arts. Well, uh, Bo, you know, now that I host co-host the radio show, my ear is more attuned when I listen to the radio to how, like, Guys do things, you know. Right. And here in Pittsburgh, there's a sports talk show where the guy recommends, like, a window business and then says, tell him Colin Dunlap sent you. Nah. So, like, if we if people went into Cartridge World and said, Bo Bonner sent me, would that help or hurt their cause? Uh, I, it depends on, you know, how recently Oklahoma State has played KU. 
true. They're a big KU uh, uh, family out there. Um, also, as always, brought to you by Mercy College of Health Sciences. We just wrapped up with a semester, all the grades in, uh, all of our information in. Bud and I can tell you that one of the true glories of working in academia is people want loads of information. It's always funny, right? Because you just yourself get done being like, you kids need to get all your work in. And then, and then it's yeah. administrators telling you to do it. And we're like, ah, and like, the dog ate my data. And, and you know, it's just hilarious how it turns uh, around like that. Well, I had 40 students, only two emailed me about grades. So that's a pretty decent batting average. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's always interesting to, uh, you, you get apocalyptic like those Pittsburgh Steeler fans where you're like, what are yep. these people doing? And did they listen at all? And then in, when you're done, you one or two students tells you how nice it was. And it's totally worth it. I feel like Ben Roethlisberger <laughs> and his youth again. No, these students were angry. Oh, no, they, not angry. They, <laughs> just minor disputes about grading. But it, all's well that ends well. Le, well this, they were Lev, the LeVar Bells or Antonio yeah. Brown speeding down the road. We're making a lot of Pittsburgh jokes today, so your, your, your people out there really need to feel the love. That's right. Well, our get, we're excited about our guest this morning, um, Father George Elliott. He's a priest in Texas. We won't hold that against him. Nah. <laughs> um, no, but he's founded Catholic Cast Media, C-A-S-T. I have to ask him if that's an acronym. And he's doing some great work on evangelization, but the, the book that Father Elliott recently wrote is called Discernment, Do's and Don'ts. I was reading that this week, and it's got a lot of like practical advice, but it's also rooted in some great theologians like St. Therese, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, St. Francis de Sales. So there's a lot of good stuff packed in there. Yeah, we just uh, had a, the fruit of a discernment here in the Diocese of Des Moines, uh, Father Ryan Andrew, who only a few days ago was Deacon Ryan. So Father Ryan, uh, tip our hat here at the Uncommon Good, just uh, was ordained a priest and uh, the idea of how long discernment um, roots itself in an individual's life, but how much it really is a communal thing as well. To see all the different people that were at his ordination, um, you start to see the, the, the social commitment it takes to raise up priests and how that individual becomes sort of a focus of, uh, of uh, a node of the community uh, in a place. So it's going to be interesting. Everybody will make sure needs to make sure to stick around. Um, I know that it will be a wonderful talk. And... Uh, a good way to conclude um, the live shows from the Uncommon Good in 2018. We, of course, will be back uh, next year, ha, 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 which is only a few weeks. Um, but stick around for the last show for us of 2018. This is the Uncommon Good. We will be back after these messages. Back with the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr. Bud, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yeah, we're really happy to have Father George Elliott on. He's a priest of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Um, he's helped to start Catholic Cast Media and uh, has served as chaplain as, as the St. Lawrence International Youth Center and for Christendom College's Rome Study Abroad Program. Uh, now he serves as a member of the Diocesan Vocations Board down there in Texas and as the chaplain to the Catholic Campus Ministry at Stephen F. Austin State University. Father, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, um, Father, I thought a great way to um, kick off the discussion today, and uh, I've really been enjoying working through your book, Discernment, Do's and Don'ts, out by Tan Press. But um, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, some of your own vocation story and how this informed your writing of the book. 
Sure thing. Yeah, so my invocation story, I, I had a, a really large conversion in high school. Um, and then I, I went to college. I went to the Air Force Academy. And um, while I was there, our Lord really just kind of tore down certain walls that I had to uh, to answering my call to the to the priesthood. I mean, for for one, I sat in the car driving from Texas to to Colorado and listened to this big CD set on theology of the body, and it was you know the beauty of marriage actually that kind of opened up my idea my mind to celibacy. I thought, well. If marriage is so amazing and celibacy is this offering of a good thing for something even better, well, then that really must be amazing. Um, and then, uh, you know, I went to basic training that first summer before starting college, and they would kind of pound into us this idea of duty and service and, you know, answering the call and all of this. And I just always kind of stood there thinking to myself, you know, um, absolutely serving the country, serving. Um, other people, that's all very good. However, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think this is actually what I am being called to. Um, I had had this sense that I was probably called to, to the priesthood, but just didn't want to answer it. Um, and uh, while I was there at the Air Force Academy, basically, um, I kind of opened up my my heart to our Lord and allowed Him to really speak to me very clearly. Um, and I felt called to the priesthood, and um, so. I, I called my diocese in Tyler, Texas, and said, hey, you know, I, I think I'm called to the priesthood. How do we do this? And I went through that process and entered the seminary um, in Philadelphia. And while I was there, I started encountering a lot of different religious orders. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I eventually realized was that God was, I, I was pretty certain God was calling me to the priesthood. However, I hadn't really discerned whether that was in a religious order or in a diocese. And so I kind of went into this you know, mid-seminary vocational crisis uh, where I had to have to sit down with my bishop and say, Bishop, you know, I, th- I think I'm called, I'm pretty certain I'm called to the priesthood, but I'm not certain that I'm called uh, to diocesan priesthood. Uh, and he was actually very generous to me and allowed me to stay in the seminary um, while I was going through that discernment process. But at that time, then I started reading all of these books about vocation, um, and I realized that either they were, um, you know, very particular. So if you think you might be called to be a diocesan priest, read this book. If you think you're called to the religious life, read this book. If you think you're, or if you're looking for a spouse, read this book. Um, and there were some that were kind of general, just this idea of vocation, um, you know, no matter what you're called to. But those were all really theological. Um, and as I was reading them, luckily I'd been in the seminary for long enough that I had the training to kind of follow what they were saying and understand what they were saying. Um, but I, I had this idea that kind of crossed my mind. Like, wow, you know, if I had been reading this when I was first entering the seminary, I would have had no idea what they were talking about, and I would have found this to be a very difficult process to go through. Um, so uh, by the end of the, the whole process, um, I, found, I did find a couple orders that I, was, I felt drawn toward, and I made visits to them. Yeah. Essentially, our Lord just kind of closed the door in my face every single time. <laughs> Um, and so I said, all right, well, you know, our Lord, I'm pretty certain, drew me to the diocesan seminary for the Diocese of Tyler, and he's certainly not calling me anywhere else, and so I'm going to you know, continue here, and um, I was ordained just three years ago, um, and priest of the Diocese of Tyler now. Now, Father, don't take this the wrong way. I just have a lot of Marines in my extended family, so I'm going to say this joke was... Right. was <laughs> 
Was seminary harder than Air Force Academy? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, it was almost the exact same schedule. We just I, I just took all of the military things out, and I put religious things in there. You know, okay. We still woke up early. Luckily, nobody yelled at us in the morning. That was really pleasant. Okay. Spiritual warfare. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. A whole different kind of battle. Um, um, in, that re- in that regard, though, to like extend the question more seriously, um, you know, there, there's two things going on, and I think uh, it's interesting you talk about there's all these books that, you know, if you're thinking of this, if you're thinking of this, if you're thinking of this, and um, I don't think anybody necessarily intended it this way, but I think sometimes... There's many ways our culture seeps into us trying to do Catholic things, even when we're not thinking about it. So there's a way in which discernment becomes something like a consumer choice, right? So like these these books, whether they mean to or not, they'll they'll take the sort of flavor of what choice are you as an individual thinking that's best for you? Which one do you want to be a part of? It's interesting to me that when you looked at these and decided that what 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 was needed. We're, we're do's and don'ts about how to appropriately approach discernment, um, that maybe that's what we, we have to change our mindset about what it means to discern. It's not only you as an individual discerning, but really it's the community discerning, discerning too, right? That, that to become a religious or get married or whatever has ramifications for the community as a whole. Did that play into why you thought that the book you needed to write needed to look different than those other books? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you touched on it a little bit there. Uh, a lot of times when people enter into a more serious discernment, it's essentially uh, them trying to prove that they are called to what they want to be called to or that they aren't called to what they don't want to be called to um, because they kind of move along the discernment process to a certain point where, okay, now it's, it's choice time, um, and I either do or I don't right now. Um, however... You know, if we, if we just kind of start off on the right path that, no, I'm going to focus myself on, on holiness and developing a life of prayer, and I'm going to know all of the different vocations and recognize that every single one of them is good and a gift from God, and then essentially uh, try to figure out which one God has created me for, which one he's calling me to, um, and recognizing that, you know, that's actually the God's choice is a better choice than my own choice, um, and accepting that and choosing that. Father, in the like, one thing that jumped out to me in the book is when you talk about celibacy, and you kind of come out, I guess, so to speak, guns blazing, and say like, this is, you know, sacred scripture tells us this is a higher vocation. And so when we when we think about a possible call to celibacy, it seems to me like there can be two mistakes, and you kind of touch on these, and and one is to sort of downplay the significance of that. The other is maybe to degrade our understanding of marriage as a vocation. Um, how have you, like with young people today in your ministry, like how do you talk to them about celibacy? And do you see among some of your students maybe like um, uh, kids running into, like trying to put off a commitment towards to later in life? Yeah, so uh, to answer the question about kind of the relationship between the two um, vocations, what I like to say is um, marriage is very good and very holy. It's, it's outstanding. It's amazing. It's this great gift from God. Yeah. And celibacy is, you know, an even higher calling. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is 
better for any individual person. I talk about in the book the difference between um, you know sub subjectively better and objectively better, or subjectively higher and objectively higher vocations. That um, you know the the status of the celibate person is that they are um, you know like the angels in heaven um, who are neither married nor given in marriage, um, and so they're, they're these people that essentially uh, that God has created to to live as signs and in a foretaste of um, that heavenly state that we'll be in. Um, and so it's considered an objectively higher one because it's, yep. it's more like the, the saints in heaven. Um, however, uh, God doesn't create everybody to be celibate. In fact, it would be quite a problem. I'm very, very happy <laughs> that my parents were not called to be celibate. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, that's a good thing. Um, and so for those people that are not ma- made, not created, not called to live that state, it's not better for them. The, the, the for them aspect is really important. That, uh, what, what discernment about, is about is not just recognizing which one is objectively higher or lower, but rather which one God created you for. Um, and that one is the best one for you. And so I try and really speak to young people in that way to understand <clears throat> that there is a hierarchy of the vocations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the better one for you is, is celibacy. Well, Father, um, when you think about these things, right, I I talk to friends who are priests and, you know, hear discernment stories, and and for many of them, I don't know, half, I don't know the the percentage, there's a way in which, you know, God seemed to go to great lengths to make sure this person realized that they should discern the priesthood. Someone has a a prayer experience, someone hears Jesus talking to them in the tabernacle, things like this. But then there's also an equal amount, I would say, where people really did go through a discernment process where someone's like, you should think about this. And they're like, maybe I should. And, 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 you know, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, God speaking at Sinai to make sure there's a discernment, you know, that it happens, I guess for, for the folks listening, um, on the, the radio show, you know, what, what's the best way to discern? You should help someone discern if that's uh, silly enough, right? Do you just like surprise 20 year olds with like, here's this book and, you know, read it. Uh, or, you know, I'm, Kidding, of course. Like, w- in your experience, w- what's the best way to approach any young person with this idea of maybe discern this way? Yeah. So I think the the first step is really just to get someone motivated to the idea of discerning a vocation. Like you said, you know, we're so imbued with this consumerist idea um, that people look at their life as well. I'm going to make the choices that I want about my life. Um, and so trying to get them to make that act of faith and that act of trust in God that, you know what, God is infinitely more intelligent than me, he loves me infinitely more than I love myself, and he's in control. And so, you know, if I just do what he wants, I will end up being happier. To get people to really grasp that idea um, and to, to trust those concepts, um, to desire to discern their vocation, uh, that's step one. And then after that, uh, yeah, you know, just <laughs> I actually wrote the book because I am a pastor and I have all these young people that I've gotten to, you know, be interested in discerning their vocation. Um, but I can't necessarily sit down and talk to every single one of them uh, about, you know, where they are in the process and the next step to take and then the next step to take and the next step to take. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is that. You know, it, you get someone motivated and they come come into your office or, you know, they, they talk to you and they say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in discerning, you know, my vocation and 
I want to do God's will for myself, for me in my life. Um, but I just don't know where to start. I don't know where to go. And that really was kind of the, the point in this book. It's written, it's a very short book, easy to read, um, to just be able to hand to someone and say, okay, you know what, read this, and then let's talk. Yeah, you know, one piece I really like about the book is that you uh, you quote some of these really important foundational theologians, like uh, Thomas Aquinas and um, Alfonso Liguori and whatnot. We also have these very nuts and bolts stories are just like really concrete stories of, of, of people you've known who are pursuing vocations. And one thing that jumped out to me, and I think, Father, it'd be good for our listeners to hear about this, is like you say that the call to a vocation is always a particular one. And sometimes it's just a matter, right? It seems to me that um, like you, you share some stories of young people who are like, well, I don't, I don't know what God's calling me to. But when you begin to talk about their lives, it's like, well, after, after the work day, I go, I go home and you know, it's not that they're doing anything, like, uh, immoral, but just sort of, like, um, you know, watching Netflix. And you, we can, there's kind of a way we can drift through life. But could you talk about some practical ways that you encourage, like, young people to, to hear God's voice so that they can hear that particularity? Yeah. So, you know, first off, that concept of the vocations are particular. One thing that I yeah. encounter a lot is somebody will say, oh, well, you know, I think I'm called to... Uh, religious life, or I think I'm called to marriage. And I mean, whenever they come and they say that, I'm, I was, I'm very polite, but I kind of think in my mind, well, nobody is called to marry marriage and nobody is called to yeah. be a religious in religious life. They're called to marry a person and they're called to live religious life in a particular community. Um, and oftentimes those people who are kind of already convinced that they're called to one or the other, what they've done is they've come up with the concept of what that is going to look like and they say, that's what I'm called to. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've been working with young people and they'll be all convinced about this you know, vocation that they're called to live. And they're just looking for this, you know, the spouse that, that fits this ideal situation that they have uh, in their mind or this religious order that's, you know, conformed to, to their image and likeness almost. Um, and they go looking around and looking around and looking around and they're so frustrated because they can't find this thing that they have in their head. Um, and, you know, whenever I kind of get them to, to slow it down a little bit, to back up and to say, yeah. well, you know, let's, let's open ourselves up a little bit more to our Lord's will and just, you know, be open to any vocation wherever he uh, chooses to call you. Uh, it's oftentimes those people that end up flipping. And so, I mean, a, a classic example is, is a girl who is out there called to marriage. She's convinced that she's called to marriage and she's looking for the perfect spouse, you know, the, the guy that's got it all. Uh, and she just can't find them anywhere. Uh, and then, you know, we, we slowly have this conversation, and it turns out that she is called to be the bride of the perfect spouse, uh, namely Jesus Christ. Um, and so, you know, when, when she enters into that, that spirituality of religious life, um, she, she realizes, ah, this is what I'm called to. Or, uh, you know, a similar thing, the guy's running around looking for a religious order that is, you know, Basically, uh, you know, it's never going to exist. Um, and he realizes that really the community that he's desiring um, to pursue holiness in is not so much a, a group of men um, called to celibacy, but rather his own family that our Lord you know, has planned for him. Um, and so uh, it's this idea that that oftentimes we idealize or villainize certain vocations in a general way, and therefore we decide, oh, I'm called yep. to marriage or I'm called to religious life, whereas actually 
um, you know, if we go looking for the particulars, what will happen is, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I had a religious <laughs> tell me that it's, it's kind of like, um, like falling in love with someone that you just, when, when you're truly uh, in tune with our Lord and doing his will, then it just appears in front of you and you kind of say, ah, that's it. That's, that's my vocation. Um, when that, when that concrete appears. Well, Father, we're getting to the break. I, I, the only suggestion I have is if you reprint this book, you need to have a whole chapter about how helpful it is to get injured in battle to discern your priesthood, because I think of like a multitude of saints that they were convalescing from injuries, and that's when they yeah. decided... No, I'm kidding. I was thinking of St. Denis. <laughs> that's right. I, you could tie your, your Air Force Academy. No, I'm joking. Father, it's been, gr- it's been great to talk to you. Where can people go if they want to find the book or find other... Um, work that you're doing in this field? On tanbooks.com, or else you can find the book on amazon.com. And then also, if you watch Catholic Cast Media, um, it's on all of the social media platforms, then also catholiccastmedia.com. There will likely be some material coming out in regard to vocations in the next year or so. And so Catholic Cast Media, is a, it's a channel that people can find like on Facebook and Twitter, and it, it has different, uh, like you do videos and things like this? Exactly, yeah. So Catholic Cast Media is a, it's a Catholic film studio is um, essentially what it is, and we have a number of in-house initiatives that we run from there, and then also different Catholic institutions like EWTN, Ignatius Press, um, St. Benedict Press, different dioceses will hire us out to create um, catechesis, and um, storytelling content for them. Oh, wow. So there's a lot uh, going on in Tyler, Texas. And uh, I lived in Oklahoma, so we don't normally think of Tyler as, you know, the center of uh, the movies and the big pictures, but you guys are changing that for Catholic media, it sounds like. We're doing our best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Father, we appreciate you coming on the show. And like uh, Catholic Cast Media, you can find on all of your uh, social media channels. And then if you go to Tan Books, uh, the do's and don'ts, of uh, discernment. Uh, Father George Elliott, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, have a wonderful rest of Advent. Thank you for having me. God bless. Thanks, Father. Yep, so uh, when we get back, uh, we'll talk about uh, this general idea about discernment and Advent, but also uh, a few remarks from Bud and I before we head off on Christmas vacation. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back after this break. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Yeah, man. Yeah, glad to have you back, Bud. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, we got, you know, around 30 minutes, Bud, to impress people with the last of 2018 and uh, ring in 2019. So I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but you better not pull an Aaron Rodgers and t- or Tom Brady on this and and totally throw bad interceptions i'll do my best yeah you, you need to go uh to to give credit to chicago people pull the chicago bears on this one well to ride the wave of that last segment you know yesterday i did a i recorded a, a, a session with uh joe stopulus from man up and we were talking about abraham from the wait record i thought uh, man up was live this may or may <laughs> not have been live <laughs> uh, although Stopulous had one of the greatest radio on-air burns ever, so you'll have to tune in to catch it. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, Bo, I think one thing that Father was saying that I think is, is just really vital, 
is I think in our like some people call our society like a liquid society. It's it sometimes doesn't feel very solid just in terms of even the um, the objects that we own or hang on to, you know. And uh, so sometimes even with vocation, we can treat it as an abstraction. You know, like Father Elliot said, no one marries marriage. Um, and when you look at when you look at salvation history and the lives of all these great figures in the Old and New Testament, you know, the call of vocation is not incidental to what God is doing in the world. So, like, covenant is central to how God actually um, mediates grace to us. And, you know, here during Advent, where we're waiting for the birth of the Savior, like, Christ's coming is precisely propelled through covenants or through vocations. You, you, you see what I'm saying there? Oh, yeah. And w- one of the things I think about Advent being a good time to talk about this um, Advent itself is a season of discernment, um, and I don't mean this. So you know, it, it, we we sometimes do this, but in, in Catholic world, and I understand yeah. why. You know, we, we do this with covenant or vocation, so we'll make them highly specialized technical words. So if you're talking about your vocation, it's usually about priesthood or religious. Or we talk about covenants, and we think about you know this is specific outlay of salvation history. But there's also a sense right in which we all have a vocation, like he said. Uh, Father said, personally, right, I have my vocation, like John Henry Newman has that uh, famous prayer when he talks about that. God has created me to do some specific work. And in a way, God makes a covenant with each one of us, right? Um, the, the, this 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 deal, uh, not like, a, you know, a, a monetary, um, but this, uh, this agreement that binds us together for a common purpose. I think the same thing happens with discernment. Discernment, of course, in sort of shorthand, in a technical way, means someone is deciding, should I do one of these vocations, which are these technical terms, right? Marriage, the religious life, um, or celibacy. But there's also a way in which no matter what you do, you have to discern things. And we take Mary as the example in Advent. Even after she had Jesus, multiple times we're told she pondered these things in her heart. And I think that Advent is a season to really impress that on us. We, we ponder these mysteries that are unfolding before us in our hearts, and we do two things, right? We think about how is it that the entire world as it exists now is going to be wrapped up in that great final uh, you know, reality at the end of time, but then we also discern what do we do now? What is it in our lives? How is it in breaking in our lives? And you know, I, I think both what you're talking about with the liquid nature of um, the current world, what Father was talking about, and you know, something that we press on the show, is discernment is not just about what would I like to do, what's or, or as he so wonderfully pointed out, how what what's the idea I've made in my head that the entire world has to spin around, but discernment is really to say what is my place in this large tapestry that God is weaving, and and that. I think Advent better than all times uh, for just various reasons. Maybe it is just because we sort of have made it the holiday season that if you can stop and think about how is it that I fit in instead of what is it that I'm supposed to do, even that sort of reorientation that Advent provides um, helps us be less individualistic and consumerist about even our religion and our faith and our vocation and think about it in the larger context of how do I fit into this larger piece that God is making as we speak? Well, I think with a show like this one, some listeners might say, like, well, how does this connect to the broader theme of the Uncommon Good, you know, Bone Bud, Bud Show? Um, you mentioned, who's, what's the name of this young man that was ordained this past weekend, Ryan? 
Uh, Ryan Andrew. Yeah, Ryan and Andrew. as you kind of intimated at the beginning, his vocation would not have been possible without, well, of course, his family, but then the entire Des Moines Catholic community. And I begin to think about listeners who make more money than you and I do, <laughs> and they say, like, how Live can it up. I, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> how can I benefit the kingdom? You know, part of it might be instead of just, like, walking up to that young man who you say, like, oh, this guy would make a good priest, and just saying, like, you'd be a good priest, uh, saying something like, could I offer you a part-time job this summer? Or, you know, for, for a lot of young people that I talk to, a huge barrier to a religious life is just debt. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> and I mean, that, and, and not just to the religious life. Think about how much debt presses on the ability for marriages to work out. I think anybody who is currently married and has debt listening on the show right now realizes how much something like an amount, a huge amount of debt puts a strain on what should be one of the most uh, intimate of relationships, right? And so we think about how we order the world today and what we expect of young people. And you start to go, if you order the world in a particular way, where every young person that I know of expects by, you know, 22 to be saddled with debt in some way, that makes saying something like, I'm going to commit my life to this other person the rest of my life, difficult. And, and, and it puts a strain on all of that, right? And it's like you said, um, what if you want to go to seminary and, you know, you have this debt and, like, it, it, it starts to be like, oh, do I have to stay in seminary now because of the debt? I mean, there's all these ways that we can start to say we've ordered society where it's really difficult to imagine making uh, these sort of lifelong choices, not only because of the liquidity of society, you know, because the, these kids yeah. and their video games and Facebook, um, but because we've created an economy, we've cr- created a social structure, we've created a civic life that makes it hard to make those commitments before they even have time to make them. Well, you know, when you and I taught together at Mercy College, uh, one thing that I think struck students is, how much of the history of philosophy was um, dominated by conversations about happiness. Right. Because <laughs> when we think about a field like philosophy, a lot of people think like, oh, epistemology, or what's, a big, what's another big philosophical term? Well, Ontology. I think the big, yeah, sad fringe people, coffee. <laughs> right. And, but, you Staring know, at the, the wall in bed, yes. <laughs> the conversation historically started with happiness, and I think, Bo, that's where, again, thinking about... Um, you and I had a teacher in grad school who talked about like moral vision, having like a certain kind of moral vision about the world. And uh, if you look at television shows or even like w- when we think about success in our society, and you said like if you looked up in the dictionary the term success, like whose photo would be next to it. And I think part of it for us has to come back to like having very serious conversations about what constitutes happiness. So one big, big idea that I've stolen from you that I use in the classroom is ruin your life well, you know? Uh, yes. And I, I just think, like, uh, I don't know, for so many kids, they're, they're, they're worried about being unhappy, you know? And we think we can have this kind of, like, certain control over our life that just doesn't exist in the way that the world really works. You know, the, all these debates about remarriage and, and the church and things like that, Pope Benedict talked about, if you look at, like, what kind of drives those decisions sometimes, especially, like, in celebrity culture— is it's a desire for eternal youth. But if you look to Revelation and to the great theologians when they say what makes us most happy, it's not, it's not the things that, that are upheld, like especially, I think, on television, that are ultimately going to do it in the end. 
I, anytime anyone's like, I'm, I'm worried about becoming unhappy, I want to be like, don't worry, it will find you. <laughs> like, if if what you're making your decisions on is like, I'm going to find the route that doesn't have unhappiness, it can be like, well, you don't need to worry, all of them have it. <laughs> and I think sometimes people miss this. They think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imagine what all the perfect possibilities are, and then I'm going to choose whatever I want to do if everything worked out. I'm stealing this from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. But the idea is, of course, everybody knows in their life that nothing ever works totally to plan. And how often in the discernment process do people go, you know, if I entered into a vocation and it was terrible, which one would give me that ultimate happiness you're talking about, right? Which difficulties and negatives would I not only rather face but grow from? And I actually think some people maybe need to start thinking about it in that way. There is obviously negatives and difficulties in marriage. Every marriage has it, some more than others. Same thing with a vo- with, with uh, religious life and priesthood and the same thing even with celibacy. The question starts to be is do you have to ask God, right, which suffering and difficulty am I better created to grow from? And if you're choosing a vocation based on if everything goes hunky-dory, I'll love this, or as Father was saying, because of this ideal I have, you will be frustrated and tempted to do that vocation poorly. But if you go into it saying, I know each vocation has its challenges, which challenges might I grow from and improve and become holy through enduring, I think that would take uh, a lot of what we're talking about out of the picture and put it in a new perspective. Hey, Bo, do I have your permission to go on a short radio rant that's oh. tangentially related? Sure. To what we're talking about? Yeah, Deacon Tony, you might want to, like, man the kill button in case Bud Are goes. like a five-second delay? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I kid, I kid. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, Bo, I'll be honest, like, to throw you another alley-oop, like, this is one area where I think you opened my eyes to some things, and, and what I have in mind is you're just talking about this guy, Taleb, this author, recovering some of these ideas. This is one area of life where I think previous eras just had uh, like a better or more realistic vision of the world than we do. It's like when you go back to a, a writer like Boethius, right, and he's talking about the will of philosophy, or the uh, will of fortune. Not or, Sage, Pat Sajak. This is before Pat Sajak. <laughs> Pre-Pat Sajak. Or like um, even something like the way that people looked at aristocracy in the Middle Ages. You know, like, there was just a, there was a clear recognition that a lot of things in life that happen to you are sort of happenstance. Like, you can't control it all. But also, like, the flip side of the wheel of fortune is sometimes those who seem to have it all, it's not necessarily that they're, they're like, self-made. It's just how, how life sort of worked out, right? But I, I just feel like we tend to plan our lives according to this idea that we can control these various factors, Right. And I, I really liked what you had to say there. It's like not, not, not choosing a path on the basis of like, well, what if everything works out? But having a more realistic vision of the wheel of fortune and then trusting God's providence in the midst of that. Well, and I mean, not to get into Twitter and, you know, different newspaper wars. There's been a lot of talk, I think just because of a certain generation of politicians dying off. There's been a lot of questions about um, like you said, aristocracies, even though they're not necessarily called meritocracies, the wasps, people who have like formally led us, all, all these fights. Um, to me, the big difference, 
uh, between what ends up being a good leader or a bad one um, is someone who recognizes the obligations that being a leader has um, and also that really it's not loads of fun to be a leader if you do it right. And so what a lot of people do is they they game the lead, the the rulers game the system where instead of actually ruling and going through the difficulty and suffering that entails, uh, they try to only get the benefits and offload all the risk and difficulty on their underlings. Well, that's easy enough to throw at like politicians or rulers. Um, but hey, shots fired. You want to talk about another rant that uh, Deacon <laughs> Tony needs to demand the kill switch? I think this is the biggest problem when we have questions about why don't parents parent their kids well. I actually think we get really obsessed with the methods. And what we don't realize is a lot of us parent to feel good, right? Right. So like all of our decisions, whether it's being like a harsh taskmaster or someone who instead is like the cool mom and dad live and let die. The problem is if, I mean, when you're a parent, you rule over other people, whether you like that term or not, you have uh, the, you, you must take care of them. You must take that leadership role. Um, but what a lot of people do is they hijack um, the, the obligations, which of course would cause suffering and difficulty, and they try only to have the benefits. And the question is always, where do the risks and difficulties go? They don't disappear. Um, it's, it's almost like the physics law, right? Like no risk or difficulty is destroyed. It's placed somewhere else. And so you start placing it on kids, and then yeah. you wonder why so many kids, quote unquote, whether it's true or not, but like the, the dominant narrative, why are kids so fragile? Why are they so easy to break? Why are they having all these difficulties? And you go, well, the risk and difficulty that the leaders, the rulers in their house, their parents should have, they've offloaded, whether it's because they want a sentimental parent, uh, the, the sentimental b benefits of parenthood, whether... Uh, they, you know, there's all ways to mess this up and it's not just like one side or the other political or even, um, personality wise. So politicians, parents, anywhere, teachers, I see this all the time. I know that this is the greatest temptation to do is to only do whatever job you have as a, a ruler or a leader, take the benefits and offload the risk and difficulty onto someone else. And when it comes to discernment, the problem is, is if you only think about which vocation I should do because I'll like it and get the most benefit, it's like you haven't even taken that role yet and you're already doing this really bad thing. And that's why I think Father's Book, people who talk about discernment, right, have to start asking, what cross are you being called to bear for your salvation for the good of others? Well, this this maybe is going to sound self-abasing, abasing, but I, I genuinely mean it. And I, I, it especially comes to my mind during Advent season. But sometimes I ask myself in life, like, am I actually lowly enough to hear God's voice? You know, and it's like a thread that runs through the Bible and then through the lives of the saints. Like I think about this time of year during Advent uh, when the voice of God came to a woman in Nazareth, you know, or like the the, the shepherd children at Fatima. And so, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm not ready to unload my income or anything, but at the very least, like, have I shut off enough of the noise and enough of the lights to have 
like a quiet space where God can actually speak to me. Yeah, and I mean, that that's all very profound, and you're a better person than I am. I'm thinking that we're getting ready to go make the grand tour to see all the grandparents, like in Oklahoma and Kansas, yeah. and we're going to be sleeping on couches, and the older and fatter I get, that's way less fun. And the kids are going to be hopped up on sugar and, like, going crazy. And then I have, you know, th- there's there's two things that come to mind about, like, my vocation as a parent. On one hand, you know, it's easy to, like, when, you know, your kid's going through, like, pain or they have to, like, go to, you know, the doctor or, you know, their friends were mean. It, it you, you start having this, like, oh, I'm the parent, you know, and I, I suffer for them because they're suffering. Um, and And it's not easy to do that, right? Like that's no fun, but like in the moment you kind of see like, you know, that puts it in perspective. The harder thing is when your kids are, um, they're just being kids and you don't want to call them dumb. Cause that's mean it's on the radio, but you know what I mean? Right? Like when your kids are pulling off some of those stunts and you're yeah. sitting there and you're just like quietly fuming and murmuring in your heart and you're just like, how long Lord, right? You know, like that's the harder time where you go. Yeah. He, he is trying to, the Lord is trying to use myself for the good of the kids. But if I would be there and be present in the right way, this is for the good of my own soul too. But man, at that point, I have to admit my soul is just stubborn and being like, can't you just like get someone to whip me with cords Lord? Because this is, I would, I would, I would rather be caned then 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 learn patience this way and he's like nope this is this is my choice for you bo well and i'm going to i'm going to steal one more from you and you correct me if i get this story wrong but like one time we were with a circle of friends and we were having this kind of like profound theological discussion about a good death and you i don't know maybe jokingly said like you're just hoping on your deathbed that you're not like thinking about donuts but and other was, things but yes yeah it, it was a kind of it was a good reminder that, like, our call right now is, like, what's the little cross in front of us? Because we won't be ready for martyrdom if we can't, you know, bear that little cross. Right, and I mean, I think that's the way to, to think about it, is that the Advent makes us think about the little things that have to occur. Mary, you know, in all of the small ways, said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. It wasn't till later, right, that there was the cross and all the sacrifice, but... Even yeah. when all that was unseen and before it was heroic, our mother said yes. And I guess, you know, as we wrap up the show, bud, um, that's what I hope blessings for the rest of our, uh, f- for our, our listeners for the rest of Advent into Christmas is saying yes to the little things that um, the Lord presents to us and that those really are, not to be too cheesy, gifts that he gives for the sake of us, uh, you know, getting to heaven. So, Bo, do we, if we have 30 seconds or something, do you know, like, next week during the show, are they going to be playing, like, Christmas carols? Because I, I can just see in my mind Brian Gonzalez, like, frantically searching the radio airways to hear the Uncommon Good. Yeah, I actually think it's just like, uh, you know, uh, that horrible Wings having a wonderful Christmas time. Like, they're going to loop that for an hour during our show. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's purgatorial. <laughs> yeah, Deacon Tony shaking his head vigorously, but sort of like uh, s- sadly as well. So uh, <laughs> this is the uncommon good uh, for Bud uh, Mar. This is Bo Bonner. I want to wish everybody um, a-, a blessed Advent and then a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you again next year. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. 
Just search for The Uncommon Good.